Hello, people. Today I'm going to be... Welcome back to Tedster McFredster's... Welcome to Tedster McFredster's book readings. Today I'll be reading the first book of Swords, a masterful new fantasy epic by the author of Empire of the East, Fred Saberhagen. Never read it before. Got it at a thrift store for like 75 cents. So I thought I might read it to you guys. Sorry about that voice crack. Alright, so I'm going to start with the prologue. As you would any normal book. Here we go. In what felt to him like the first cold morning of the world, he groped for fire. It was a high place where he searched, a lifeless wind scoured place, a rough forbidding shelf of black and splintered rock. Snow driven by squalls of frigid air streamed across the black rock and white powder, making shifting veils of white over layers of grey. Ancient ice that was almost as hard as the rock itself. Dawn was in the sky, but still hundreds of kilometers away. As, a, as distant as the tiny saw teeth of the horizon to the northwest, the snow fields and ice fields along the far edge of the world were beginning to glow with, with a reflected pink. Ignoring cold and wind and mumbling to himself, the searcher paced in widening circles. On his high rugged shelf of land, one of his powerful legs was deformed, enough to make him limp. He was searching for warmth, and for the smell of sulfur in the air, for anything that might lead him to the fire he needed. But his sandaled feet were too weathery and unfeeling to feel warmth directly through the rocks, and the wind whipped away the occasional traces of volcanic fumes. Presently, the search searcher concentrated his attention on the places where rock protruded through the rough skin of ice, and he found a notable bare spot. He kicked and stamped with his hard heels, at the ice around the rim, watching critically as the ice shattered. Yes, here was a place where the frost was was a trifle less hard, the grip of the cold just a little weaker. Somewhere down below was warmth, a warmth meant, ultimately, fire. Looking for a way down to the mountain's heart, the searcher moved in a, swim, in a swift limp around one of his shoulders. He had guessed right before him now loomed a great crevasse, exhaling a faint, faintly sulfurous atmosphere descending between guardian rocks. He went straight to that hard-lipped mouth, but just as he entered, it paused, looking up at the sky and once more muttering something to himself. The sky brightening with impending dawn was almost entirely clear, flecked in the distance with scattered clouds at the moment and conveyed no messages. The searcher plunged down into the crevasse, which quickly narrowed to a few meters wide, grunting, making up new words to groan with as he squeezed through. He steadily distended. He was sure now that the fire he needed was down here, not very far away. When he had gone down only a little way, he could already begin to hear the dragon roar of its voice. As it came, scorching up through some natural chimney, nearby to ultimately emerge he knew not where so he continued to work his way toward the sound moving among a tumble of house-sized boulders that had been thrown there like children's blocks an age ago when some upper corners of the mountain had collapsed but last the searcher found the roaring chimney squeezed himself close enough to reach in a hand and sample the feeling of the fire when it came up in its next surge it was good stuff this time with its origin even deeper in the earth than he had hoped. 
a better fire than he could reasonably expect it to find, even for such fine work as he had now to do. Having found his fire, he climbed back to the wind, blasted surface at the dawn, at the rear of the high shelf rock right against the face of the next ascending cliff. It was a place somewhat sheltered from the wind. Here he had now decided to put the forge. The chosen site was recess, almost a cave, a natural grotto site set into the cliff that towered tremendously higher yet. Out of this cave and around it, more fish chimneys were splintered into the black basalt of the face. Chimneys through which nothing now rose but the cold howling wind, drifting a little snow. The searcher's next task was to bring the earth fire here somehow. It a form both physically and magically workable. The work he had to do with the fire meant going deeply into both those aspects of the world. He could see now that he would have to transport and rebuild the fire in earth-grown wood. That would mean another delay, here on the treeless roof of the world. But minor delays were unimportant, compared with the requisement of doing the job right. From the corner of his eye, as he stood contemplating his selected forge site, he caught sight of powers that raced airborne across a far corner of the dawn. He turned his head to see in the distant sky a flickering of colors, lights that were by turns foul and gentle. Probably, he thought to himself, there are not there are only at some sport that has nothing at all to do with me or my work. Yet he remained standing motionless, watching those sky colors and muttering to himself until the flying powers were gone. He was once again utterly and absolutely alone. Then he clambered down the surface of the barren mountainside, moving methodically, moving swiftly and nimbly. Despite one twisted leg, he continued going down for almost a thousand meters to the level where the highest real trees began to grow. Having reached that level, he paused briefly, regarding the sky once more, scanning it in search of messages that did not come. Wind trapped and funneled here between the peaks blasted his hair and beard that were as thick and wild as fur, whipped as his scorched garments of fur and leather rattled the dragon's scales he wore as ornaments. And now names began to come and go in his awareness. It was out as if he saw them flickering like those magical powers that flew across the sky. He thought, I am called Vulcan, I am the smith. And he realized that descending even this moderate distance from the upper height had caused him to start thinking in human language. To get the size and quantity of logs he wanted for his fire, he had to go a little farther down the slope. Still, the highest human settlements considerably below him, the map-like spread of farms and villages, the site of a distant castle on a hill, registered in his perception, but only as background scenery with no immediate significance. His mind was on the task of gathering logs, here, where the true forest had started. Finding logs was not difficult, but they tended to be from twisted trees, awkwardly shaped. It occurred to the smith that an axe, some kind of chopping tool, would be a handy thing to have for this part of job. But the only physical tools he had beside his hands were those of his true art, and they were all back at the site he had chosen for his forge. His hands were all that he really needed, though, clumsy, though. They could sometimes be with wood. If a log was too awkward, he simply broke it until it wasn't. 
At last, a huge bundle that even his arms could scarcely collapse. Clasp. He started back up the mountainside. His limp was a little more noticeable now. During his absence, the anvil and all the other ancient metal working tools had arrived at the forge site and were dumped there in a glorious disorder. Vulcan put down his firewood, arranged everything in an orderly array around the exact place where he had decided that the fire should be. When he had finished, the sun was disappearing behind the east face of the mountain that towered above his head, pausing briefly to survey what he had done so far, he puffed his breath a little, as if he, he might be in need of rest. Now, to go down into earth and bring up fire, he was beginning to wish he had some slaves on hand, helpers to handle some of these time-consuming details. The hour was approaching when he himself would have to concentrate almost entirely upon his real work. He longed to see the metal glowing in the forge and feel a hammer in his hand. Instead, gripping one five-meter log under his arm like a long spear, he descended for the second time into the maze of crevasses that ran beneath the upper mountain. Though through this maze, he worked his way back toward the place where fire and thunder rose sporadically through con convoluted chimneys. Convoluted chimneys. This time he approached the place by a slightly different route and could see the, the reflected red glow of earth fire shining from ahead to meet him. That glow, when encountered, daylight seemed to wink as if in astonishment at having found this place of the air so different from the lower hell in which it had been born. At one neck in this crevice, the rocks on either side Pinched in too much to let pass the smith and his log together. He sat down on the walk, laid his hands on the rocks, and raged against them. This was another kind of work in which his hands were clumsy. The enormous hairless fingers like his sandaled feet. and leathery. His skin was everywhere gray, the color of old smoke from a million forge flies. Now, with his effort against the rocks, the sandals on his huge feet pressed down against the other rocks, dug into pockets of old drifted snow, crunched and shattered ancient ice. Presently, the rocks that had narrowed the crevasse gave way to pressure of his hands, splitting and booming and showering fragments with a satisfied Grunt Vulcan the smith took up his log again. One final time he paused, looking up at what could be seen from here of the day's clear sky, only a narrow tracy of blue. Then he went quickly on his way. When he pushed one end of his log into the roaring chimney, the earth fire caught promptly and deeply in the wood. The log became a blazing torch when the smith pulled it back from the inferno fissure and tossed it spinning in the shadowed air. It rose and popped and snapped with a hot perfumed combustion. Vulcan laughed, pleased with the forge fire he had caught. Then he tucked the log under his arm and quickly climbed up again. He built his forge fire quickly on the spot he had prepared for it. Now his anvil, a tabletop of ancient and enchanted iron had to be positioned levelly and solidly in just the right spot relative to the fire. This took time, 
as he worked with the anvil adjusting its position in small increments. The smith decided that he'd have to make at least one more trip downslope for fuel before he'd be able to start his real work. After he'd begun that in earnest, he'd want no interruptions. His eye fell on the waiting bellows. The sight made him frown. Yes, it would be very good, perhaps essential, to have some helpers. The more he thought about it, the more obvious it seemed. Yes, human help would be necessary at some stage, given the particular, the peculiar nature of his job. He now had earth fire burning in earth-grown wood, with the clean upper air of the earth to lend its spirit to the flame. Opposed to this, in a sense, was the unearthly metal that he was going to work. At one side of the grotto sky iron waited, a lump of its the size of a barrow. It was so heavy that the smith grunted when he took it up into his arms to look over it carefully. He could feel the interior energies of it waiting, poised in their crystalline layers, eager to be shaped by his art. He could feel the ethereal, unearthly magic of the stuff. Yes, even crude-looking as it was, swagged and pitted on all sides by the soft fist of air that had caught and eased this madness of its fall, slowing the fall until mere crashing instead of vaporization had resulted when the mass struck earthly rock at last. Yes, the metal itself would bring enough, maybe more than enough, of the unearthly to the project. Human sweat and human pain were going to be indispensable. The catalyst of human fear would help to refine the magic too, and even human joy might be put to use that the smith could devise any means by which rare essence might be extracted. And when the twelve blades had been forged at last, when he could raise them straight and glowing from the anvil, while, why, for their quenching, human blood would, doubt, would doubtless be best. The keening pipe music and the slow drum were borne to Milo's ears. The cool night breeze, well before... The few dim lights of Treefall Village came into review between the trees ahead. The sounds of morning warned her that at least some part of the horrible tale that had reached her home was probably true. She murmured one more distracted prayer to Ardna and once again impatiently lashed the ends of the reins at the flanks of the old riding beast she straddled. Her mount was an elderly creature unused to such harsh treatment and to long night journeys in general. When it felt a sting of the reins, it skipped a step and then slowed down in irritation. Myla, in her impatience, thought of weeping from its back and running on ahead, groping her own way along the whiteless and unpaved road. But already she had almost reached her destination. Now she could hear the cackling of the village fowl ahead as they as they sensed her approach, and now the first lighted windows were coming into a view amid the trees, presently on a main street, every bit as small and narrow as the only street of her own town. Mewa was dismounting under a million stars, whose light made gray and ghostly giants of the Ludus Mountains looming just a few kilometers to the east. Autumn nights in this high country grew cold, and she was wearing a shawl over her regular garb, a working woman's homespun trousers, and this blouse. 
The music of mourning was coming from a building that had to be the village hall, for it was the largest structure in sight. And one of the few whited Myla tied up her animal at a public hitching rack that was already crowded, moving lightly through her joints felt stiff. From the long ride, she trotted the few steps to the hall. Her hair was long, dark, and curly. The loveliest thing about her physical appearance. Her face was somewhat too broad to be judged beautiful, but by most people's standards, her body was also broad and strong, vibrant with youth and exercise. Her quick step carried her onto the shadowed porch of the hall before she realized that a man was standing there already. He was in the shadows, not far from this curtain doorway, which Candle White and music came out, along with the murmur of many voices and the soft thump of dancing feet. His bearded face was unfamiliar to Milo, but he had a certain look of importance. He must be, she thought, be one of the elders here. To simply rush past an elder without acknowledging his presence would have been impolite, and Myla halted, one foot in the shadow cast by the rising moon. Sir, please, can you tell me where the... Sir, please, can you tell me where the... Jord, the blacksmith, is? Since courtesy required speech of her. She would not waste the words, but instead try to use them to accomplish her urgent search. The man did not answer her immediately, and said he only looked in her direction as if he had not clearly heard or understood. As he turned his face more fully toward Myla, she saw that he was stunned by some great pain of grief. She spoke to him again. I'm looking for Jord, the smith. We, we are going to be married. Understanding grew in the tormented face. Jord? He still breathes, child. Not like my son, but both of them are there. Myla put aside the curtain of hides that half-closed the doorway and went through to enter the most crowded room that she had ever seen in 17 years of life. She guessed wildly that 40 people, perhaps even more, were gathered here in one place tonight. Yet the hall was big enough for the crowd, even big enough to have at its center a sizable area free of crowding. In that central area stood five rude beaters each covered with black fabric, expensive candles burning at the head and foot of each. On each briar, a dead man lay draped with ritual clothes. On several of the bodies, the clothing were not enough to hide the marks of violence. Near the foot of the central briar was a single chair. George was sitting in it. Milo's first glance at him made her gasp. Confirming as it did not aspect of the evil story that he had reached her in her own village. The right arm of her Beth trough now ended a few centimeters below the shoulder. The stump was tightly wrapped in flesh, well tended bandages, lightly spotted with the bleeding from beneath George Beard stubble faced his age and shrunken, making him look in Riley's eyes like his own father. It might in his white hair there was a gray streak that she had never noticed before. 
Faces in the crowd from our early visits here. Most of the people were another. Few of them were dressed outlandishly, except they might come from far away. Still standing near the doorway, looking over her shoulders and seeing shifting bodies. My love greeted a prayer of thanksgiving to Arden for goods for that. And yet, even as she prayed, she felt that we came. A man who was going to marry had been changed drastically and terribly before he had ever had the chance to know his full heart and strength in youth. Then, as if trying to reject her at first, God, she tried to step forward and move the way to do it at once, but then it pressed the body's head in half. This moment she had the impression of an odd young and very awesome girl. But it must have been only seeming in her mind. She was not used to that, and when she looked at the faces of the friends around her, they were all doing just what they had been doing in the building. And then they paused a high cream creep in the doorway behind my and pushed inside by someone else. Amid the damn music of the group and conversation, there was no way she could have heard the soft movement, but she did feel the same augmented breath of the cold wind for that night and slid down from the night. And then, in the next moment, the man's hand came up and left on my own mind. Unsinuatingly, not hard for you, just did it. It had a right to be there. Like any other body or not. But he was none of them. His face was entirely concealed by maps. Later. It looked like dark to her bed. The mask surprised me. Like her mother, a few times in her life before, at wakes and funerals, she had been wearing many. She had seen her own mask. The explanation was that feuds could be exasperated. Frankfurt's and alliances sometimes strained between the enemies. Even the latter appeared to be seen more in the open before the enemy was a friend, or rather, while at the same time, some conflicting rule. Others were taken in to be ignored by those who did not 
even if it were not really kept secret. Alright guys, let's go ahead and do it. Uh, tomorrow, at same time, I'm going to pick up where I left off on page 12 of the prologue of the first book of Swords by Fred Saberhagen. Thank you.